Well, everyone, today is a special episode for me because my guest is my grandfather. He was the former mayor of Tampa for four terms. He was born here in 1933. He's lived here his whole life, and he's got an incredible story to tell. So, Nanu, welcome to the show. That's an incredibly long time. <laughs> that is a long time. So nice to be here. I can't imagine sitting across from my grandson and doing a podcast and the we did radio shows, I don't know how many times while I was mayor. Did one for eight years and then a bunch of others during the week, all during the time. So we wanted to let people know what was going on. Of course, radio was listened to a lot more back then even than now. Right. Well, now it's all about the internet. Podcasting is the new radio. <laughs> so I appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. Mayor Dick Greco. I got super interested in Tampa as a city, because when I was eight years old, actually on my eighth birthday, when you were mayor, you invited me into the mayor's office and you let me be mayor for the day. And you took me around all around city hall. I got to sit in your office and you took me to uh, the fire department and I met the fire chief and the police chief. And I understood kind of how the city was run, I guess, as, as best as an eight year old could. And then at the end of the day, you gave me this key to the city. It's been a long time ago, my friend. Long, long time. And I've had it ever since. Um, and it's so special to me because obviously it came from you. But um, I wanted to ask you, what are these given out for exactly? Just for the same reason you've got you've kept that and it meant something to you because it was a key to the city where you lived and and uh you always it was a kind gesture for people that came to visit and that type of thing and uh you did different things for them. Maybe take them to dinner or whatever, give them a key to the city and that type of thing. Did you have a drawer full of those? Yeah, I had quite a few. <laughs> but we didn't give them away that easily. Right. Well, I guess I was one of the lucky ones then. I know you were a grandson. Yeah. <laughs> Special perk. So you were born in Tampa. Um, you were born in 1933. And you were born in Seminole Heights. So could you tell me about kind of your parents, how they got to this country and how you came about? Well, my parents were both born here, but all the grandparents were born. My grandfather on my mother's side was born in Spain. Everybody else came from, from Italy and Sicily. So as a child, I spoke both of those languages, which was kind of unusual in some of the lights. But our hardware store was in Ebor City, and you heard every language in the world there every day. And uh, it was a long time ago, but uh, it was very different. I was born in the house. You know, uh, I was delivered by a midwife, which was very common in those days. This is going to sound crazy because I looked it up because it didn't make sense to me either. But an aunt of mine was a midwife and probably the most popular one around here for years. She delivered 12,000 babies. Wow. That's a lot of kids. And they have lifts of them uh, where that was actually a number. And uh, my dad had a uh, birth defect. He had one hand that was um, a little bit paralyzed and a leg about an inch or two shorter, so he had a limp. And all of his life, he, uh, he was afraid if he had children that I would have the same malady. Mm. And someone wrote... Uh, in a book that was never published, it says, 
that uh, my mother said that when I was born, he was heard me crying. He was in the front room, and they were in the, another bedroom. And my aunt said, come on in, you can look. And he was afraid to look at me. He walked in, and he was afraid he was going to see some deformity that he had. And he looked at my mom, and she said, you can look, he's perfect. That night, they decided never to have any more children because I was perfect. Now, most people could never imagine what it would be like to be an only child of Italian parents and be perfect. That's the way they felt. Right. They lived for me. I mean, everything I could ever want, I could ever need. And there was some, you kiss everybody goodbye when you left the house, when you came back, till the day they die. Mm. And that goes for the grandparents, for everybody, for the family. It was a different world. It was a different world. And Seminole Heights back then, were all those homes, I guess they were newer, right? A lot of those old bungalows are from the 20s and 30s. So yes, some of them were new homes. Was Seminole Heights almost like the suburbs back then? Now it's a part of the city. but No, it was, it was uh, just still part of the city. Yeah. It was where we live. We're very close to Memorial and Junior High School and uh, Hillsborough High. It was walkable distance yeah. in some of those schools. I went to all three of those schools. Wow. And uh, we had a playground, Giddens is still there across the street. All the neighbors were like family. You know, Christmas, everybody exchanged gifts, come over and so forth. And if someone died in the neighborhood or something like that, for weeks people would take them food, those things. And yeah. You played football in the street or whatever they were. <laughs> Wasn't a lot of traffic like today. Imagine. I'd, I'd imagine not. No, very different. And everyone knew each other, everyone on the street. Today it's very difficult, to, you know, you you don't mingle that much with mayors or with your neighbors and that kind of thing for some reason. Yeah. You bought things at a certain place all the time. You usually shopped at one or two places for food and for clothes, whatever. You went to one barber. When I went to the University of Florida, I drove all the way home to get a haircut because <laughs> nobody had ever cut my hair but Johnny that had a barbershop across the street from our hardware store. And I couldn't imagine what it would be like to did, walk in somewhere else. <laughs> did your parents own the hardware store when you were very, very young? Yes. They were there 40 years. My mother and dad were, worked in the hardware store. And they started it? <clears throat> no, uh, Mr. King started it. And my dad worked with him, and then Mr. King passed away, and it became King Greco Hardware. We've got a level. I don't know if you can see it where you're sitting on it, but you see the King Greco Hardware level? Right. My goodness, you kept one of those? Yeah. Well, my dad, I guess, passed it down. He worked there when he was young. They had that store for 40 years, and that was in Ybor City, where Rock Brothers is today. Right. So you grew up with your parents owning this hardware store as a kid, probably meeting all the customers and interacting with people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We also had a couple of service stations, filling stations. One on Lincoln, Nebraska, another one a block away from the hardware store. Wow. So yeah, your dad was an I entrepreneur. Was, I was looking up a gasoline, and I used to pump gas when I was high school. I worked at worked the station. It was 23 cents a gallon. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, Can talk you about, imagine? Talk about change. A lot of changes. 
Definitely a lot of changes. And you knew all of your customers. Right. Always swept out the inside the car when they'd come and get a gallon or two or whatever, you know, fill up a tank. <laughs> Life was probably so much more slow back then. It was slow and you took time to, to talk to people, to to take uh, time to just be like a giant family. People came to that hardware store, most of them, well, they made cigars and so forth in Ebor City, and they came from all over the world. And many of them didn't have $20 or $50, and they'd make a deal with my mother and dad to, can we pay you $5 every Saturday or something like that? And on Saturdays, they'd kind of line up and come in there, and everybody would bring not only their 5 or $10 or whatever they pledged, but figs or collard greens or whatever was growing in the yard. It looked wow. like a grocery store by the time you went home. And that went on for years and years and years. And uh, when many of those people made money enough to move to different parts of town, places they never thought they'd be, David Solid, things like that, they came to the day they died wow. of loyalty and love for each other and caring. And uh, they never forgot that most of them started with nothing. And uh, this country made it possible for them to to have much more than that in their life. And there's so many stories. Your father, for instance, became a judge, as you know. And I'll never forget this. When I, uh, we were building signs for him one day at Farmer's Market, they have a big uh, platform outside there, and several of our friends went there and were cutting these big signs of him waving out of plywood. And I called one of the old carpenters from the store. 40 years back and I said we're making some signs for my son want to help us absolutely I'll be there and I was standing outside when he drove up in his car I saw him get out of the car and had a hammer in one hand and saw in the other and he walked up to me he said where's your son and I called Dickie over of course he didn't know who he was I said Dickie you know why I have this hammer and this saw and your father says, no, sir. So when I was 16, I walked into your grandfather's store. I said, Mr. Greco, I want to be a carpenter. So he sold me this hammer and this saw. I paid 50 cents a week. So when I paid it off, he gave me my money back. And he said, good luck. Wow. I hope you do well. I said, I want to use them on your first son. People never forgot. Any nice gesture, anything that ever happened, never went away. And there were people from all over the different parts of the world that ended up really loving each other and caring. Uh, you shopped at two or three places. And yeah. They knew what size you were when you walked in and right. that type of thing. Well, there was a personal relationship you had with those owners and the people that worked in those places. Everything was like that. And today you just click a button and whatever well, you need today, arrives at your front door. you live door. in a condo or something, there's a great big room there every day that fills up. Everybody orders from Amazon. Right. You get out of a box. You don't even talk to anybody. Uh-huh. And it makes a difference in a lot of things that we do, a lot of the ways that we act. It's right. normal. Not that, you know, yesterday's over, but there are things you can learn from it. Right. And things that I miss about it, I can't help it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine a lot of that disconnection from our fellow human is, is kind of why everything's so messed up today and why yeah, politics think, is know, crazy and... All the 
sicknesses been having, you know, wear masks and that kind of, yeah. that didn't help a couple, three years of that. No. It kind of makes you wonder, you know, <clears throat> I saw my mother and dad hold hands all the time off. You kiss everybody goodnight when you leave. When you go somewhere, I tell right. them what time you're coming home and they would always be awake. Uh, life was about our family, our neighbors, and, and about this community and what you could do to give back. Relationships, yeah. And yeah, things are so different today. Oh, very different. Just about everybody went to church. They all belonged to civic clubs. Yeah. I was president of a civic club when I was in my 20s. The yeah. Optimist Club of Palmasia when I was 20-some years old. That kind of got me started being together in politics and that kind of thing. So you, you, grew, you grew up in the hardware store and, and you witnessed your father and mother have these relationships with all these people. And of course, you got to know yourself. You know, you were the only child, so I'm sure they all knew who you were. Then getting into kind of your teenage years, uh, what, did you, what was Tampa like then? Well, it started, of course, to grow. Not, not like we're talking about now. And when you look back at prices and things like that, it's just almost funny. Yeah. When I went to work for Mr. DeBartolo a few years down the line, I was trying to sell him Harbor Island for $3 million. <laughs> One lot on Davis Island is $10 million. Bucks. Yeah. If you'd have said that back then, nobody would have even understood what you're talking about. No, no. I mean, the, the, the Harbor Island, the whole island for $3 million, there's houses for twice that on Harbor Island now. Oh, twice. Three yeah. times that towards yeah. the south end, which is, that's hilarious. And that wasn't even that long ago. I mean, you're yeah, talking like 1970s. 70s. Yeah, 50 or so years ago. Amazing. So you were, a lot of people might, might not know, but you were a national skeet shooting champion. Oh, I did a lot of that. That was really great. When I was um, 14, I went to the gun club, Cigar City Gun Club. And guess where that was located? Right where the airport is now. Oh, wow. On the road that's closest to uh, Columbus Drive. Yeah. It was a gun club. And I went there with some of the Spicolos one day. They had a hardware business, too, some of the older ones. And and I had never shot skeet. But uh, Nick Jirasi, who had a uh, large company that sold produce in Ybor City, Watched me shoot and started telling me what to do and so forth and so on. <clears throat> the next day, he walked into my dad's store. I'll never forget this. And he said, your son is can shoot. He said, amazing. And I've never seen somebody 14. I had never done it. He said, if you let me help him, I'll make you a champion. Well, my folks thought that was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't even know what ski shooting was, particularly until then. And he started helping me. I started going. They, they went out and bought me the right kind of guns to shoot ski with, uh, whatever equipment I needed, that type of thing. And he got behind me and told me what to do whenever we would go. And I got pretty good at it pretty quick at 14 years old. And at 14, you're a sub-junior. That's what they call you. And I started shooting in some tournaments and won a number of them at 14 years old. So by the time, you know, I was playing, time I got to high school, I was playing tennis and a lot of other stuff. But so I put that behind me to shoot skeet. Mm. And uh, when I got it to be 16, uh, I, I did it enough to get real good at it. 
And uh, I think my last year average for the year was 98.44. Oh, my God. And, you uh, barely missed. So I traveled to various ski shoes, and my mother would drive me there. All over Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, Connecticut, Texas. Wow. And I won some of those. And I won the national when I was 16 high overall in Texas. And I met a lot of people. A lot of people in the Air Force were, were ski shooters because they had to learn to lead targets. Now that's all mechanical. Right. And uh, I met so many people all over. Uh, one first time I was invited to shoot ski at McNeil Air Force Base, I was 16, and I had won the national championship. And my invitation was from General Tippett's. He dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Wow. And I shot skeet over there near Bayshore Boulevard where the gun club was then. That wow. was uh, when I was 16 years old. I'm going to be 90 in two or three months. Quite long a long time, time ago. ago. Wasn't it called McDill Field back then? It wasn't no. an air base. No. It was McDill. That's one of the greatest things that Papa has too, by the way. Yeah. How Those lucky are we? people all dedicated to this country. Uh, I met so many wonderful people. Many of them retire here. Those people vote. They go to church. They do a lot of the things that everybody used to do. They're patriots. I mean, th those are the people right. that defend our country. True. At the highest level, too. I mean, you have Central Command there and Special Operations Command at McDill. So. Yeah, people from many countries that are there and operate uh, cameras and so forth that you see everything that's going on in the world. 24 hours a day. The other base like that, the only one is in Qatar. Mm. I went to visit that one with General Franks. and Oh, how cool was that? Oh, we've got some wonderful people at McDill Air Force Base. Thank God for those people. Who believe in this world and this country. And uh, that hasn't changed much. Uh, people all used to vote. They used to, to go to church. They belonged to civic clubs. They did all those things. Our hardware store would be in Ebor City whenever anybody would run for office or something. You know, they would come by and visit places like that and sit and talk to you and so forth. I met every governor, uh, just about everybody that ever ran for office in, in this county would come by. Wow. Is and that how you got your first taste of at least meeting politicians? And I met them constantly. They came yeah. to the hardware store. We had a... My dad would take some of them back in the back to the uh, to the warehouse and let them sit on a nail keg. And that got to be one of the governors, I forget which one it was, he, he won and he thought that was half why he won, it was good luck. So everybody knew about the nail keg. They would come and ask to sit on it. Many people sat on that nail keg. I kept it for years. And somehow it got lost when I moved to Harbor Island years later. I remember that. I know my dad sat on the nail keg. Oh, my God. We had it in our place growing up. And, yeah, when you guys moved. But it, that was uh, – I met every politician in Florida. They would come yeah. by. And uh, they'd come back to say thank you and that type of thing later. And That's amazing. Very, very different. Where'd you go to high school? Hillsborough. Hillsborough High. By the way – Talk about change. There's only three high schools now. Jefferson, Hillsborough, Plant. Yeah. Now I think I'm 60-some or whatever it is. 
See, I don't, I don't know. There's a bunch. Could you, Tyler, could you just look up real quick the population of Tampa? And I guess you would have been in high school in 43, late 1940. What, what was your graduating class, high school? 51. 51. Look up 1951 population in Tampa. I just want to see. Just for, you know, the, the relative thinking about, you know, people don't understand how many people live here now versus back then. It's, it's a lot different. Oh, change. So you went to Hillsboro High School and you were shooting skeet. Uh, did you play any sports? No, I uh, I played uh, tennis just as a sideline. I didn't. You like shooting a lot better though. Well, I didn't have any choice. I was every time a gun club was open, I was there, or I was traveling to go go to a shoot. Probably part of the reason you can't really hear very well today. No, no, no question. <laughs> Back then, you didn't wear hearing aids or hearing protection. Oh no! Well, the reason was you used to have to hold your gun down. Basically, to your waist. When you hollered pull, it came out from one to three seconds. So you say pull, and, and it made a noise, and you. Ah. you so you had pull. to hear that click of right. the skeet of right. the clay so, being shot. So you, you wanted to hear that because you had to do all this before you could shoot. And so then it got to be, they changed it to below your elbow. And people start shooting like this by lifting their elbow up. And you don't, so now it's just right up to your face. Right. You don't have that anymore. And if you're nuts, if you don't wear your protection where you're shooting, because I you know. definitely will not be able to hear well. It's cr- <laughs> I mean, I remember shooting growing up. My mom always yelling at me about putting earplugs in. But back then, I guess people didn't really know the implications. Well, you realize what happened after that. You know, everybody who shot a lot back then. And, couldn't hear too well. Yeah. So the population back in 1951 in the city was 151,000. Does that seem right to you? That seems like it's high to me. But it says in the metro is 400,000. We have a few million in our metro today. I know the population of Hillsborough County is at least a million two or a million three. I'm not sure the exact number is changing so quickly. Yeah. Well, especially in the past few years. We've had so much growth. You know, when you look at those numbers and you realize that grown such and so forth and you see some of the voting precincts and and numbers it's kind of frightening yeah there's a lot of people that aren't just not interested in local politics i have a lot of people say i wouldn't be in politics or anything in the world this is like it's the worst thing on earth well it's it's not too pretty anymore and probably never was from that angle but it's important yeah and uh, it's just amazing to this last mayor's race here. A few people showed up, and uh, a lot less than voted like a long time ago. When I ran for mayor the first time, I had been on city council for four years. I started started there at uh, let's see, when I was twenty nine. Years old. Now I was 33 when I got elected mayor. And you're not going to believe this, but 60,000 people voted in that race. Yeah, that's like a 50% turnout. 60,000. Wow. And that <laughs> that's a bunch. That's a lot. And that's a long time ago. And you know what? You had one day to vote. 
There right. wasn't any write-in, nothing like that. No vote by mail. And if it was a storming, whatever, that was it. Yeah. People stood in line to do that. Uh, I think in the runoff between uh, Mayor Castro and, and uh, Strass, I think 6,000 less of that voted the runoff. What a shame. Well, it doesn't make sense, the population we have and so forth. This last election was so sad. What do you think happened? How, how do you go from... Um, it's, it's all about... There's so many more things to do. Phone and... Yeah, yeah Everybody you see is talking to their phone, pressing buttons, this and that. You don't, you don't kiss everybody in the house when you leave. And that kind of, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a different world. People and are, people are very... Not to say, you know, the past, the past is over. Yeah. There's no question about it. You bring it up only to say that many of the things that were done back then should stay with us a little bit, if we could, you know? I think so. And uh, it's disheartening to see very few people turn out. Some of the ugliness that goes on in politics, the nastiness that goes on, and it really, the way some people act that are in politics, you should be so grateful that people think enough of you to go vote, to help you do that kind of thing. A lot of people aren't. You know, when I got elected city council, I was uh, 29, I think. I made a list of people to thank. And one of the things I'll never forget, uh, I went to see the gentleman who owned the black newspaper here, Blythe Andrews. And he'd been a friend a long time. He shopped in our hardware store, vice versa. <clears throat> and... And my dad were buddies. He says, son, I want to give you something I never want you to forget. And he put a piece of paper in his typewriter, typed it out, pulled it out and handed it to me. And it's possibly what's wrong today with a lot of people. It said, never become a prisoner to the boundaries of your own ego. Mm. You know, politically... The guy that's sweeping the street, his vote counts the same as the man that owns the bank, doesn't it? Right. And you're nothing without those that help you. The day you think you're somebody and do like some of what we see, oh, tell them whatever, but you can't do that, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. This is what they want to hear, stuff like that. It's gotten pretty sad. It has. You're grateful for those people that help. I had people build their own signs, come by, bring $5 to the store to help, that kind of thing. They never forgot. Let's talk about that first campaign. So you're at Hillsborough High. You graduate. You said you went to the University of Florida. For one year. For one year. And then you moved back. Moved back to Tampa. I miss this place. Yeah. You had to go see your old barber too often, right? Unfortunately, went to Tampa U. And look how that school's grown. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It's unreal. That's another great asset to our city is UT. Sure is. A lot of great talent. A lot of nice, good kids, smart kids coming out of that school. school. They're staying here in Tampa, too. They're not going back to New York or back up north. They're staying here in Tampa. I run into people all the time that have come from all over the country. Oh, yeah. They're going to school in Tampa U. Back when I was there, uh, they didn't have air conditioning and stuff. And in the wintertime, (laughs) I remember they'd throw a log on the fire in the classroom. Oh my fall God. asleep, it was hard to stay awake. You, know? you had a fire inside the classroom. Oh, yeah. 
So you're sitting here listening to a professor and the fire's going yeah. crackling. You're getting all warm and comfy. Very small school. Wow. They had a football team back then and so forth. Wow, they had a football team back then. I didn't know. Oh, that. an excellent team. What year? This would have been in the 1950s. Well, Mid- yeah. I've, 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 yeah. Mid-50s, 50, yeah. Mid-50s, 52, 3, 4. So you graduate University of Tampa, and after college. You know, I always, my, my, all those people came in the hardware store that ran for office. Yeah. I had two cousins who were on the school board. They got elected. Wow. Uh, and one of them, Greco schools, named after one of my cousins and so forth. And I used to say to my dad, you know, everybody comes to see you. Why don't you run for office? And I never forgot. He used to say, no, he said, I, I don't have the education to run for office. He said, maybe you should consider it sometime. And that was brought up a bunch of times when I was just a young kid. Huh. You know, he did he not go to college or anything like that. He just worked all his life. And uh, it meant a lot to them. And I'll never forget, you know, when I was 29, decided I, I'd run for city council. How excited they were. When I ran for mayor, my grandfather on my mom's side, did not speak English very well. He spoke Spanish and the rest of them were Italian. He uh, to told me to show you how people were in those days and what it meant. Called me to the house. He said, how much did it cost to run for mayor? I said, what do you mean? He meant the qualifying fee. And I think it was $1,800 or something like that. I don't even remember exactly. But he said, your grandmother and I want, want to pay for that. Well, they, they had retired cigar makers and I, uh, I said, oh, thanks a lot. I got some, no, I don't. Anyway, I left. Mm-hmm. Gave him a hug. Two days later, my grand, my dad called. He said, you got to go by the house. They've got a check written they want to give you. Please take it. I said, Dad, I can't do that. He said, they, they, you don't understand. He said, they have nothing to worry about. They live with us. And means a lot to them. So you don't understand. Someday you will. Mm. I went by the house. He gave me the money and he said, do me a favor. I said, what? He said, if you win, he said, I want to be there. And I said, okay, don't you worry. I'll, I'll make sure you are. I'll never forget we had a party downtown. Several hundred people. And I sent someone earlier to get my grandfather when the results started coming in. I waited for a while while everybody was having a good time and uh, waiting for my minister to start the meeting and to say thank you. And he walked up. My grandfather did. And I heard him say to my minister before he started in broken English, I don't care if I die now. I've seen everything I want to see in my life. Wow. And I thought, that's a little much. But I never forgot it. Because one son became president of a bank and owned part of another one, another one was a CPA. Every grandchild they wanted to got a college education. The American dream to those people were beyond anything we could ever imagine. Yeah. And I never forgot that. 
and probably never will. But those things were sort of behind us. What was his name, your grandfather? Cotarello was his last name. C-O-T-A-R-E-L-O. Cotarello. And um, my my dad, after he passed away and so forth, my mother sold the store. And she was in her 80s. And Uncle Roy Cotarello, his son, was president of the bank in Ybor City. She went to work at the bank for several years at 80-some years old. It's a different type of person. You, you got to think about these people came over here on a boat. This was before airplanes. Well, a lot of people did. Yeah, but seeing that dream realized probably made him feel like it was all worth it. All that risk going across I, overseas, leaving your town, leaving your country to come here to make it's something the of yourself. Country in the world, and I can't yeah. imagine. I can't imagine doing that. Look at what we're looking at today, and so forth. All of the people. My times have changed. Crazy. So. so that first election, the results are coming in. You win. Your grandfather says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. I can die now a happy man. You must have been one of the youngest people for sure in government at the time I was in the entire country. one of the youngest mayors of any city in America. Wow. 33. Did that click with you at the time? Do you remember thinking about that? Holy shit, no, I'm I, the I mayor. Didn't pay much attention to that. You know, I'd already been on council for four years, and I saw things that needed to be done and mm. realized if I was mayor, I could help in some way. Got it. Uh, there were a number of changes that needed to be made. So you were focused on the work. Absolutely. I focused on what could be done and what needed to be changed. The friends at, oh, my gosh, Central Avenue downtown where we had some riots after that and so forth and so on. Look at it today. All gone because we worked on it together. Mm. I heard the high the first black person in the mayor's office in the history of the city. Wow. First black assistant city attorney in the southeastern United States. The first to head the housing authorities here. Many Latin people did not get jobs and so when I started on the job training program for people Amazing. Know that they could get jobs if they could live up to it. So you saw that civil rights movement and really resonated with it and implemented it. It's all, all part of it. Yeah. I walked down Central Avenue while I was burning down one night. I showed up off the next day, a bunch of friends. We did things we had to do to make changes. We got more federal dollars of any city outside in America, I was told. How'd you do that? That's how the, because we worked on it. We, we started uh, Model Cities. And uh, we got a group of people who worked 24 hours a day going after money. We had a, we had to, uh, a lot of places were, you know, pretty messy. And that was um, last night at Tiger Bay. You were recognized um, Lifetime Achievement Award along with Senator Tom Lee. I think he mentioned in his acceptance, you know, congratulations speech about you hired his father, on that model city board. Wow. And I had a bunch of friends in working on model city. They worked 24 hours a day if they had to. Wow. And, and what was that program exactly? To redo different parts of town and that type of thing. This is in the 1960s. Federal dollars. Sulphur Springs was all that, all that building there. Much of that's all federal money around Cascade Park, Ybor city, uh, many places. 
millions of dollars with, with federal dollars that we got. Wow. We worked real hard on it. That's amazing. And look at where we're going today. And much of that was planned a long time ago. Right. And being dead. That was uh, Tampa Stadium, right? Turning into that Raymond James. Dead. That was federal money. A lot of it was federal money. We, uh, when I got elected mayor the first time, they were they had just voted for a three percent uh, sales tax for this type of thing, and it, and it failed. And they wanted to put a stadium with it and that kind of stuff. And I said, no, I wouldn't do that because I was worried about schools being on double session. And one of the things we did right after we got elected, we uh, we had a, a campaign just for that, for that election, and opened a campaign headquarters and built bumper stickers, did all that. And that's still in effect today. That helped save this, this place. Joe Shalura was the one that brought it up. He was a county commissioner, a good friend, came up with a name, and it passed. Some people wanted to run the stadium by itself to support the pass. And that, that tax is still in effect today. Oh, my gosh. And thank God that saved the schools and a lot of things. There were so wow. many things that had to be done then. There were all kinds of rental homes that you had to bring up to, to human standard t- to get federal money. And here I'd lived here all my life and knew there were all kinds of people. People were sitting there. And one day I... I got a list of a bunch of homes that were marked unfit for human habitation and didn't say anything to anybody. I got in a car and went myself to visit all of them. I did that several days by myself. Uh, first time in my whole life that I ever talked to people that were 70, 80 years old that never had a hot bath. They didn't have hot water in the house. As mayor, you just by yourself Got this list of homes. Yeah, and I knocked on the door. Hey, I'm the mayor. Uh, yeah. I see your homes on this I list. Did, What's I going don't on? I have any of those. Wow. I'll line up between Nebraska Avenue and uh, Emore City and other places. So we got on them. People were renting places like that and their screens were stapled on the outside. If you had a fire, it would be hard for kids to get out or anything. And, right. Um, Many of those things had to be changed back then. And we listened to people that knew what they were talking about. Like the airport, for instance. You think any of us on the Aviation Authority back then knew the, what it meant to put spokes on there and how quickly you get to the plane? And we didn't. But we listened to people that made sense. And uh, we started to do that and look at that place now. I'd imagine is I was on the aviation authority when we started that, and forty years later, when uh, when we added it to, to the thing, I was on it again. That's all. Well, gosh, Tampa International is one of the highest ranked airports in the entire country. The things, fa- the way it's set up is incredible. It's a great airport. My gosh, we had to build one today. Where would you put it? You'd have no to shit, it right? Way, you? Yeah, it'd be terrible. It'd be impossible. But, it'd be like Orlando. <laughs> but again, people helped with that that knew what they were doing. Yeah. And then when we, people like Metropolitan Life Insurance, every city in this state was trying to give them a free piece of land. They bought Tampa. We came here. We got to be friends, and we treated people like friends, still do. 
when when they first came down, I'll never forget it. You know, we always you take people to Burns, stuff like that. Right. But the first night they were here, we got Pepin's bus. And, uh, you know, you could have a few drinks on the bus if you wanted to, ride around and show them stuff. We took it to a friend's house over on the fingers over there off of West Shore, and we caught Mullet off of a dock. They didn't know what a Mullet was. <laughs> we fried fish that night. Oh, my God. And uh, the two top vice presidents were good tennis players. Back then, I played pretty well. They always wanted to play, and I'll never forget it. I set up a game at uh, Davis Island, and I showed up. I had this 16-year-old kid with me, and I apologized. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, my partner that I normally play with got sick. I had to bring my neighbor. Well, his name was uh, Armistead Neely. He was a Florida State 16-year-old champion. <laughs> and, of course, it took him two seconds to, to realize what I'd done. Right. But we were like that. We had fun. Well, part of that was probably because you were so young. Well, what, I just like people, and they liked us, and Tampa was like that. I would Tampa. bet a lot of federal people from around the nation would say, hey, man, you got to visit Tampa. They have a young mayor. You get to go on a party oh, bus and catch everybody, mullet. Everybody was so friendly. I mean, you, yeah. Everywhere you went, uh, you're beginning to see some changes now. You know, as people get, cities get larger and so forth. For instance, right now, you know, Rush hour, you get out of here and light turns green. And you're not in a hurry. They're blowing a the horn. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't like that many years ago. Yeah. But, but uh, everybody was so grateful for what they had and uh, believed in all of the things that, that make it a great place. And uh, I guess this, this, this country is phenomenal. It really is. It's an amazing place. And even for me, I'm young and starting a business and I'm, I enjoy being in this country and thank God for men like you and your grandfather making it all possible. It was a big bet back then to come over on a boat, you know, to a, to a new world and be hard to understand how you could even do that. Leaving everything behind. I actually went to the city that they were from Santa Stefano in Sicily. <laughs> and it's pretty clear why they left. There's not a whole lot going on there. I mean, it's a small little village in the mountains. They're so nice. Uh, they can't do enough for you when you go. You went? Oh, yeah. Uh, Santa Stefano and Alessandro Rocco, which is right next door. The mayor there for 30, 40 years was Enzo Greco. <laughs> really? He was a cousin. Oh, my God. And, oh, when I went, my God. They couldn't do enough. They closed the downtown for lunch, and they had a band for us to come downtown to meet everybody in town. Oh, my God. And wow. people came, and and he, uh, I'll never forget the, the way those people treated us. I went to the top of a mountain. The guy had a bunch of cows, and he sold cheese all over the world or something, but you wouldn't know it. Beautiful sight right out of San Stefano. And we had a glass of wine and was eating some cheese and crackers. And I looked out and I said, how much of this do you own? He said, all of it. I said, what do you mean? He said, as far as you could see. And there was houses up on the mountains and this and that. He got up where we were sitting. I'll never forget it came over. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, Mr. Enzo has been our friend forever. 
You're his cousin. You're his family. So you know what that means? I said, no. He said, anything you see, he has anything, anything you ever need. He said, it belongs to you. You come anytime you want to. Wow. And he meant it. He gave me a hug. Uh, those people were together. And when you went back, it was just, you know, they couldn't do enough to be nice. Well, they probably heard the stories of a few generations before them. Hey, you know, this, this guy leaves and goes to America, and then you come back, however many decades later, as the mayor of Tampa, as a young mayor. I bet they were thrilled to have you. I bet they thought that was incredible, that you had, that generations had they, they accomplished so all, much. They couldn't do enough yeah. for us. I mean, there's just... That's amazing. Wonderful. Took me up to the top of the mountains where the cemeteries were. Showed me where my grandmother was buried, my great grandmother. I mean, wow. And uh, I just went twice. I it just couldn't be nicer. Wow, amazing. So um, that was kind of your first term, and then second term. You left during your second term to work for a private company, right? For the Bartlett Corporation. Or to Bartolo Corporation. This was in probably the late 1970s. Yeah. I had three kids. One of them's your dad. <laughs> and uh, I, I'd do anything to do something for them with them, you know. And, uh, the, the mayor's salary wasn't mayor's quite salary, I think it was cutting like $35,000 a year. Oh, man, with three kids and, and a wife. Uh, yeah. But I loved it. Yeah. And... Uh, was that a very hard decision for you to make? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. And Mr. Bartlow, I met him. And I was, you know, trying to, I told you I mentioned Harbor Island for $3 million to him, and he was going to build some malls around here. And he built several of them in Florida, and he said, you need to come to work for me because I'm going to do a lot of work all over. And he offered me a job, paid considerably more than, Thirty-five thousand a year, but it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made in my whole life. And uh, I had to think about it, and I was afraid that, you know, I'd let my family down and so forth and so on. I'll never forget going by myself to sit over by Tampa U, where I where I went to college, right down the river there where Julian Lane Park is now. I sat by the river and I was looking at it downtown. I had one tall building, First National Bank, that was it, that I had gone to the groundbreaking and also to put the treetop on top. And I knew what was coming because we purchased other land and I knew it was going to grow and so forth and so on. And But I just... Thought I'd be letting my family down, and what would happen if, you know, my kids didn't turn out good and all that kind of stuff. Good, good school. Mm -hmm. So I decided that that would be best for me. And it wasn't easy. When I was looking across the river, I remember uh, I added a few teardrops to the water out there that day. Anyway, made the decision, and uh, and uh, that's the way it went. Wow. And I worked with him all all over getting land for and that you talk about a hard working guy, my God. Mr. Right. Bartler did nothing but work. He had no 
clue of anything else. He was from a family of immigrants too, right? Yeah. Worked night and day, absolutely. It wasn't a matter of money. It was a matter of achievement to do more. Wow. It was just crazy. He must have been very motivated by his you know, oh. grandfather, father, his absolutely. family. Absolutely. Yeah. Proved that he could do better. I could tell you a million stories about him. I mean, we had, he had some surgery run time for a hernia, and I called the next day to see how he was. Hell, he answered the phone. I said, what are you doing? He said, nothing. I said, you're at the office? He said, yeah. Doesn't it hurt? And he said, yeah. Wouldn't it hurt wherever I was? I didn't know how to answer that exactly. But that's the way he was. Wow. I mean, this guy, he didn't know. I took him to the zoo with two of the young kids. They were young then. One of them now owns the San Francisco 49 football team. And got him a scooter to ride around in. And I was just thinking, I need one today myself, but it was just the opposite back then. Yeah. We got up to the first uh, place in the Bush Gardens, and a bunch of orangutans were running around. And he looked down and he said, Look at those bears. And I didn't say anything. He didn't know a bear from a baboon. <laughs> and I told that story that year when I spoke to the our big banquet that we had. So our boss is making all this money. He's done all this stuff. He doesn't know a bear from a baboon. <laughs> he didn't think that was too funny afterwards. He said, why didn't you tell me? I said, oh, my God. I had he and Mr. Dillard, when we built them all up in Crystal River, I fly them around in a helicopter. I wanted them to see, you know, what it looked like where we were building it. And I was showing them on the manatees. Put this right in front of your... Mike showed him the manatees and told him what they were. And he said, do you eat those? I said, no, no, not really. And I tried to, and I, one, the other ball up, uh, up in another county here, I'll never forget, we had to catch a bunch of gopher tortoises and move them, you know, before you start building. Right. And it was taking time because they figured how many they thought we had. And he was calling me on the phone. Why aren't we starting that damn job? And I said, we got to catch the gopher tortoises. There was a silence on the phone. He said, the what? He said, what is that? I said, it's like a turtle. And he hung up the phone. <laughs> he didn't say anything. thought I was kidding or something, making a joke out of something that was important. He didn't know what a gopher tortoise couldn't imagine that you would uh, hold a building a great big mall for a turtle. Where was he from originally? Uh, he his family was from Italy, some, but he was from Youngstown, Ohio. Ohio, so they probably didn't have those types of turtles up there. Maybe I don't well, know. He would see one. He worked night and day. That man was there, crack of dawn every day of his life. Incredible. So you were helping him find locations to build no, his shopping malls. You'd have to get it rezoned. You'd have things done with the government. So government relations. Yeah, I did all that. Then I got them to start speaking when they'd open a mall, so he never did that before. And I did ask him, please do it. And, uh, that type of thing. He wow. had racetracks. He had all kinds of stuff. He never stopped. So he was a developer. This is in the late 1970s. And how long did you work for the DeBartolo Corporation? 
20 years or something. 20 years, wow, quite a while. Then it came back to be married again. <laughs> yeah, full was, circle, right? It was a lot of fun back then. So you spend 20 years with DeBartolo, you're probably making some good money. Then what motivated you to get back into politics? I always loved the city, and I always loved politics more than just about anything. And uh, the great part is I was able to do it my way. I say my way, the way that it should be done, I guess. Uh, when I first decided to run for mayor, I was for the council. I was 29, and nobody had run at that age, hardly back then. And I made up my mind I would never say anything about anybody running against me or, or be ugly or make comment wasn't right and that I would never ask anybody for a campaign contribution. Mm. And a lot of guys around me said, well, you're nuts. Anyway, uh, a lot of things happened and they wouldn't do it. And They wanted you to play the game. They wanted you to... Yeah, you get, you know, if you want to win, you get right. wrong with asking for money other than somebody did something wrong, say it. Yeah. And uh I'll never forget uh, Dr. Flynn and Dr. Hose were kind of running my campaign with a bunch of younger people, too. We had a meeting every week. And uh, they said to somebody was running in the race that family had a lot of money. They start putting signs up all over. And I'll never forget one of them said, okay, Tom Swift, uh, if you don't win, who are you going to help? Mm. It's the first time I'd ever thought of that. I don't want to go ask people for money and so forth and so on. I just didn't want to do it. It's a true story. I drove home with my minister who lived on Davis Island on the same street, my good friend. I said, Earl, what should I do? He said, once you read the Bible, he said, maybe you'll know. I said, yeah, I'll call you in about 10 minutes and I'll get have my answer. And I'm laughing. Not everybody knows the story, but it, I knew what it meant to my parents and my grandparents. How much I mean, it wasn't anything wrong with asking for money or saying a few things that I could have been said about some of the others. And I went and sat by the bed, and the Bible was sitting there, and I, I flicked it open, Garrett. And I looked down, and the first verse that I saw was in the book of Proverbs. You know what it said? Better is just a little with righteousness than great revenue without justice. Wow. That's what I said. Well, I didn't say anything to anybody. I went back the next week. I said, whether we win or lose or whatever happens, we're not changing anything. Wow. Now one by the largest margin ever in the history of the city. Incredible. So you made the decision to not. And I never said anything bad about anybody. I never asked for money. And you didn't fundraise yourself. I, I never, no. Some people had me over to their house and, you know, had people give to but I, I never sent a letter asking for money, nothing. And I always had all we needed and money left over. One election wouldn't even have anybody uh, running. We gave that to, to uh, junior college. Wow. And so I was able to do it. What I felt was the right way or the way I should do it. Aren't those the two things wrong with politics today, right? One of them is the money in politics. And then the other one is politicians saying bad things about one another. And the media taking that. 
Well, it's got to be just crazy. Yeah. And it's uh, interesting, though, to me that those, those were the two I things. A lot of people use that as an excuse that, you know, I don't have anything to do with that. The hell with it, everything's all the same and so forth and so on. It's a shame mm-hmm. because there are a lot of good people in politics. But it's just uh, when I ran the last time, the only time that I ever lost was uh, do this, do that, and there were people looking up. They could tell you from the day you were born what, what you've done, not done, and this and that. And wanted me to say this or do this. I it's a, just wasn't... Uh, wasn't comfortable with that. Yeah, it's a shame what kind of a dirty business it's turned into. I mean, there's people in the, that political industry that, like you said, their job is to look up dirt on other people oh, and, and to expose that. Stuff. Yeah, All kinds of stuff. So you left the DeBartolo Corporation. You decided, hey, I want to run again. I love it. I've maybe made some decent money where I feel okay, and I can go for it. That was when I was a little kid. That was, I think, um, maybe 1994. Yeah. So you got back into it, and you were maybe in your your sixties. <laughs> However long ago that was, something like that, right? Thirty years ago, yeah, you were probably sixty, sixty something. Um, and what was kind of that like? It's very fascinating that you were in politics here locally when you were twenty nine to maybe thirty five, thirty six years old, and then again in your sixties as an older man. What was it like? Did you come back into the office and? Was your head spinning, or were things similar? No, we had to. We acted the same with everybody and uh, uh, put together one heck of a team. Whatever this town needed, one after did it. For instance, we we needed a hotel downtown. We didn't have a a hotel that was near the convention center, and we weren't doing too well in the convention center. So Lupulzencia here is a hotel guy, good friend. I called him in. What do we do? And he called some of his friends with Marriott. I'll never forget this. And several of us met in the office. And uh, I said, we, we need a hotel downtown on the waterfront. We were, I think, 18th on the list of where they wanted to go. And uh, I said, okay, how do I get to be number one? And they said, you'd have to remit some taxes. A lot of people don't know this, but the that was so important. The uh, The lobby of that hotel is an art gallery. <laughs> they don't pay taxes. Air quote, art gallery. Yeah. They don't pay taxes. No. And then we did that. It was public. Nobody said anything. But... Uh, and we sold uh, sold the aviation authority of the land on Davis Island where the airport is. What's the difference, you know? Took that money and some others, and we bought all the land in Kutanchobe Park next to the Marriott there. Yeah. And, and uh, with the federal dollars and so forth, we bought Mirabella's Fish Market to the next land, and then McNeil Park. And then later on, we found out Curtis Hickson Park was the lease. We, wow. We bought that. So you bought a ton of land in downtown Tampa. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So the and, Marriott. And other places. But that, that helped us. There were three buildings across the street from um, 
the Marriott. They were old, nasty-looking place where the trolley stop is. And uh, I had promised them, you know, that they'd be gone. And uh, they were historic, and I thought, oh, we're going to go some junk. It wasn't anything historic about them. And this group that I had said, what do we do? I said, I want them out of there quick. Well, everybody worked together real good in those days. Uh, by that weekend, uh, the buildings were gone, and uh, nobody said anything, except one of them was owned by Tampa Wholesale Liquor. It was a vacant place. He wasn't in town. They tore his building down. <laughs> he came back to Tampa from what the, Europe. What the hell kind office. of a phone call did you make? No phone call, nothing. He came to my office. Oh, shoot in my building. I sit down and let me tell you. Oh, no. He said, thanks a lot, Dick. He gave me a hug, laughed and left. So you tear down the guy's building and he's ha- and by the well, time no he walks good. out. And so forth. He might have had to go through goodness knows what. Right. You did him a favor. Because it was old. Yeah. And things like that. <laughs> but we bought so many pieces of property here, there, and yonder all. And uh, Tampa Heights and all there, there by the river where you lately is, God, all, yeah. land, all the way to the next bridge. Holy shit! So the Marriott down there, that park, Curtis Hickson. What the hell would we have downtown as a city for parks, green space? Look at what Curtis Hickson is used for. All those amazing events there, and God, we'd have nothing without that. Well, it's it's getting pretty packed up and solid. And, yeah. We're happy to have people like Vinick and others that are right. doing the right thing. And but Tampa has really grown probably far and beyond what many people thought could ever happen. And you watch what's going to happen in Ebor City because we prepared for that years ago. That's done right. You're going to see a real difference. How did you prepare? Did you know? Did you have a vision of Tampa? Did you have an idea that one day this city would blow up into maybe the city it is today or even in the future? Did Absolutely. you think, wow, I need to make this investment in these areas? Absolutely. Yeah. So Ybor City, how did you know and uh, what did you do up city there? It's historic. It's a, and look at all the people that were going there by the thousands yeah. on weekends. And it got a little out of hand lately, you know, but. It's getting better. That could be re- redone. Yeah. We need cops here all all time, and we we just clean it up, and lit it up. And we've got some people buying land there like crazy now, and you watch what that looks like in the next three four years. Yeah, you're not going to believe what you're going to see. All look at what's happened in near Ulele and all that old building. Well, Daryl Shaw's put out his rendering. He's doing just a great job, and you know, in addition to money and that kind of stuff. Daryl Shaw loves that place. Yeah. And he loves Tampa. And he's doing it out of his heart. He's really a nice, nice person. And he's, uh, he's putting a lot of money in there. Yeah, we need that relationship between the government and private individuals. like Guys like Jeff Fennick and Daryl Shaw and politicians like you and other people that, you know... You people are the are the people that make it all happen and make this place a, an amazing, incredible place to live. Well, now everything in Phoenix guy's going to grow up to where Ebor City is, 
that's going to grow like crazy. Watch, a lot of people are going to start, young people start moving back in there, and then you're going to see some real differences. Yeah, Palmetto Beach will make some changes, which is across the channel there. Yeah, uh, next few years, when you stop and think about it, Tampa is. You've got everything you need. You got sports. You've got this. You got that. You've got uh, thirty-five minutes. You'd be over to the beach. You do whatever you want. Have a good time. Yeah. Uh, all the sports teams are here. Weather's beautiful. No state income yeah, that's tax. That's another thing. You'd be outside ninety-five percent of the time. And what's happened with this, this, this pandemic and so forth that we've had? Mm-hmm. A lot of people come down for the first time. They can't believe what they see. Mm-hmm. And things are happening in their city that they're not as happy with, so forth. Uh, we got a lot of people moving down, mm-hmm. lots of, and that means new things. And uh, some people feels a little too fast, and so forth. what are you going to do? Right. And you're always going to run a little behind because you need to have the people coming here to for the money to come to to make the improvements you know you need. Mm-hmm. But. A lot's been accomplished and more coming. What I love, one of the projects you did was bring back the Tampa streetcar. Do you remember the Tampa streetcar when you were young? Did you ever take it? Yeah, I took it a lot. Actually, it used to go down Bayshore all the way to to, uh, Port Tampa. Wow. And I used to go there with my grandfather, my mother's father. We'd go to to, uh, Ballast Point, my streetcar and so forth. And... uh, it's a little different. Well, it was gone for 50 years. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people helped with that. They did a good job. Something a little different. But next few years, if you know the economy stays in pretty good shape and so forth, you're going to see tremendous changes. For a lot of people, it's a little much. I mean, it's downtown is getting, uh, getting just like becoming a real city, you know, finally. But, it's all new, good-looking stuff, good people. Well, it's taken to such a high level. You know, when you walk down Water Street, you really get a sense of quality. And a lot of the projects around the country, even here in Tampa, locally, wherever, they're, they're just done, you know, the developer builds it to make money, and maybe there's a little bit of a design factor. But when you walk down Water Street, what they've done is just amazing. It's beautiful. They took it to a completely high level. Well, they have to once you have one or two, you know, you're, then you're competing with each other. You got to look, look good. Yeah. But uh, you're going to see a lot of things in the next few years that, uh, that are going to be good. I'm and sure you have. area we've got to think about, too. Clearwater, St. Pete. Oh, my gosh, and, yeah. I need everything. This is all one. Right. What, what good that takes place in any of those places makes the whole area better. Yeah. And uh, not individual. I want to go back real quick to your first couple terms as mayor. There was a lot of crime in the late 60s and 70s. There was a lot of volatility, and um, Belita was rampant. Um, and I know you were kind of instrumental in stopping all that. So how did that play out? Belita was a numbers bracket business. Run by the mafia, right? Yeah, run by – that's how it kind of started. A lot of people got in it. It was – Around for years, and that was after a lot of the mafia had gotten cleaned up and so forth. So, well, that, that still was in existence, and it was a blight on our city, and kind of a blight on 
people with a name like mine too in his nose. <laughs> they probably thought you were a ringleader. Well, I, I, I knew most of the people. They come to my store. They were, they were friends, so forth. Some of them were came from places of Sicily, other places like that. And one of the brothers would go to work at that business to, to support the family and so forth. And it was, and you know, later on it gets worse, but they get into drugs and that kind of junk. It was hurting Tampa. We had story after story for years of horror, junk like that. And uh, it had to go. I mean, it really did. Every once in a while they'd shoot somebody and so somebody else would take over. And it was, uh, a lot of the government people were involved, all kinds of stuff. And I wanted to, to get rid of that and, uh, and try to figure out how because it's been going on so long. Well, I uh, I need a police chief that was 100% honest that would not be succumbed by any of those folks. So I went to the FBI and I asked, you know, what do you think down there, the police department? And one name kept coming up. And if I asked people that I knew at the police department, they kept mentioning Babe Littleton, Babe Littleton. I didn't even know Babe Littleton. But looked like he was the type of guy, supposedly, that uh, everybody was telling me would not succumb to any of that kind of stuff. So I needed to hire a police chief, and I called him in to my office. I'll never forget it. And we talked about a lot of stuff. And in the course of the conversation, I said to him, babe, you know, if every once in a while I need something done that wasn't quite right or so forth, so but not too bad, would you do it for me? He said, hell no. So you did the wrong person. I said, good, you're hired. He looked at me and said, what? I said, go do your job. I said, I'm not going to ask you who to promote, what to do, nothing. I said, I want to clean this stuff up. And you're the chief. And he made promotions. He did all kinds of stuff. Never asked me. Wow. So you let him run the show. You let him be the police chief. A few weeks went by. He came back down to the office. He said, I want to thank you. For what? He said, for letting me do my job the way I'm supposed to. He said, I wasn't sure that you were full of, you know what, but uh, he said, I appreciate it. He said, you could count on me. Wow. And that guy was tough. I mean, you didn't do anything wrong there or else. I mean, uh, some police officers took some money, and they were going to, one of them came to me and commit suicide. It's not just, and, I called him in. I said, you know, I, I know these people. With some spare money they had from a deal that they were working with. And I said, I, I'm afraid he's going to kill himself. I said, well, don't worry about it. I said, save me doing it. Whoa. Period. And then he walked out of the day. Jeez. He, he, just, well, he was tough as nails. We had meetings sometime where things were 
tough if somebody didn't understand something. And I'd have them over at my house. After the riots with a lot of top people, we'd get down to why you did this, and he'd explain it. By the time he was finished, you know, everybody understood it. And, uh, and the whole thing just changed totally overnight. Does it still operate like that today? I mean, do, does the police chief have a meeting at the mayor's house? Things don't seem like they work like that anymore. I don't know what they do. Yeah. They're advertised all over for, to get somebody. It's, you know, whenever there's like a closed doors meeting, people get a little sketched out by that. It just seems like back then things were, like you kind of said, relationship-based Humans were, would understand each other. They would seek to understand each other versus today where they have a certain set opinion that they won't, you know, separate from. I can't tell you how many of those. We'd have meetings in the middle of the night when those riots were starting and so forth and so on. We'd meet at my house. We'd meet all kinds of places. And, and uh, everybody was willing to help. Yeah. It's a different time. You were so involved, too. I think you told me once you would, you know, you'd have a police radio in your car. You'd go to all the different calls. and Anything major, I wanted them to call me, and they would, and I'd get up in the middle of the night and go. If I was in my car sometime, I'd beat them there. Wow. You see, we get the idea that everybody lives like we do, whatever that is, depending on what part of town you're in, that kind of thing. Or <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> And there's a lot of people lived here that have never been to certain parts of town and so forth. Or a lot of schools that are uh, very different from others. And uh, a police officer, they see an awful lot of things you'd never imagine. I mean, I, I remember the first drug, drug grade I ever went on was people were shooting heroin in their gums. And... Uh, had a baby that hadn't been changed in three days in the, God. In the crib. They had called the girl's father. He walked in the door and he saw that. He didn't know that was going on. It was his daughter and his grandson, his granddaughter. God, how horrible. He started to cry. He was a friend of mine. I knew him. Mm. Can't put his head on my shoulder. What am I going to do, Dick? And as that drug scene was all of a sudden grew like crazy, that's still around. Things I saw there, shoot heroin in your gums. Oh, my God. It's horrible. It's worse today. And a police officer sees everything. They see all kinds of things. Mm. All kinds of people with very little to eat and that kind of thing and so forth and so on. Yeah. Uh, I took a couple of busloads and took a lot of the bankers and stuff like that through the projects off 22nd Street and let people let them in and so forth and see should have heard the comments, oh, God, they had two pieces of furniture, this and that. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of people need help. Yeah. And, and I have an understanding of, of that. But Tampa's uh, it's come a long, long way, and uh, there are nice people here. Well, let's hope to God we get interested in all the things that help build what took place over all these years to where we are and cherish it and give give back in every way that we can. Yeah. Here, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
What do you uh, What do you just think? I don't know. Overall, looking at Tampa, you mentioned when you were running for mayor or when you were uh, going to go work for the DeBartolo Corporation, you were sitting on the edge of the Hillsborough River looking up at the skyline. There was one building. Now there's you know, a couple dozen. The city's grown so much. Do you think Tampa will one day be like a Boston, a San Diego, a big, big, big city? Well, and the way it's laid out, probably not, you know, because you get to the north, it's, it becomes more rural a little bit, except it's changed and drive out there now is crazy. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a, a big city. It's big, bigger right now than some people are happy with, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. But uh, when you stop thinking about it, you're surrounded by water on the other side. So going to start paying attention to what you're talking about because you're starting to hear that, like, Wait a minute, you know? Yeah. But uh, when you stop thinking about it, there's not that much left here. They're, you know, they're working on the other side of the river now, and uh, you're going to see some older parts become a little better, tearing them down and that type of thing. Right. But I think we, we'd be careful not to overdo if we can help it. And that, that's, that's a, that question is a good question that... Uh, for years, you didn't have to worry about, but at some point, you know, you, you could overdo some things that would make it uncomfortable to drive and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, the traffic has certainly gotten crazy over the last few years. Good question. You're already seeing some opposition to a lot of the new projects coming up. There's a lot of neighborhood opposition gathering right, together, right. especially the projects on Bayshore. I think when you take that into consideration and listen to what people have to say, you're going to see everybody concentrating on that subject too yeah you know maybe it's too big for this area or or do something else or how can you handle the traffic and those kinds of things but it's going to grow like crazy it has to i mean like we mentioned earlier you know any lifestyle you want you've got the best airport in the world you've got uh, all sorts of things here that are beautiful the beaches and all that kind of stuff. We don't want to ruin it. And uh, you mentioned police. You want to have a great police department, best you can have. It does their job. And uh, you know, you can't be fearful of everywhere you go and don't do this. And mm-hmm. be careful if you go here at night. You got to take all that into consideration. A lot of the other cities around the country, in the north, east, and especially out west, lately, the last three, four years, maybe since COVID, they've gone in a, in a really scary direction. There's a lot of crime. Crime is up in a massive way. Thermal. Do you think that's a failure by local government? How much influence can local government have over you know, safety of its well, citizens and quality of life? The way some of them are handling it is not, you know, that great, I don't think. But yeah. every city, every place is a little different. And uh depends on how many people you have that are involved in those types of things. And knowing those things can't happen, you got to make sure that uh, in advance of getting so bad that you can't handle it to take care of it. Yeah. Well, it shows you how important local elections are. Right now, it's uh, going pretty good. And that's why they, you know, people got to vote. They've got to be yeah, listening to what's going on, watching and wanting to be a part of it. 
I don't think, I think people think of the presidential election of like the end all be all election to pay attention to. A lot of people forget about how important local politics is, you know, that's, that's who's doing your roads and your schools and your police and your fire. And that's who's kind of running your little world. Extremely important. And we have good people here at large. We're lucky. Yeah. We're definitely lucky. But that's governed by those that help put them there. If everybody doesn't become a part of it, goodness knows who's going to elect what. What do you think a way we can get more people to vote? I mean, like. I I don't know. I think it's, you know, talking about it, uh, of course, see some of the things that are taking place and so forth. You hear so much about all the bad stuff and maybe don't look around at the good. But Tampa's so pretty now. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's great. I mean, we live on Bayshore, look out the window and see the prettiest view when I walk in and it means a lot to me because it's where I was born and Mm. see a lot of changes. So many changes, just even in my lifetime. I mean, even me looking at the skyline, it's pretty crazy, and I'm only 30 years old. You know, I made a speech several years ago at the Columbus statue there on Bayshore. Uh-huh. When I was first mayor, and I said, I wonder if Columbus could come alive and looked around. I wonder how long it would take him to digest everything he'd be looking at. Right. And that's true. I th- think ships, cars, telephones, this, that, every, everything in everything. the world. Yeah. It's changed. And it's two day by the day. Now, a year or two go by and you see things you never knew existed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the problems. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Once you get something that, that you get an answer to it in about two seconds, you've got to have it. Families go out to dinner and everybody's talking on the phone at the table and, and on and on and on. Yeah, in a way, it's sad to see kids on their iPhones. Yeah, we've got to take our time and begin to pay attention to each other a little bit too. I think. I think I've been thinking about that a lot lately. We actually just found out today uh, Cody is going to be induced on Thursday, next Thursday, uh, to have the baby. Thursday, you're you're making me a. Great grandfather, the third time, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to that. Me too. I know you are. <laughs> but, it, but I look at, I think about the future and I think about the way the world is today and how much it's, how much it's changed and the stories you tell me. And I think about my son and what life will be like when he's my age and then when he's your age and how much, how different it will be. Well, but. You are thinking about it. See, that's the difference. Life is not just about me, period. Yeah. Like, ever become a prisoner of the boundaries of your own ego? Right. Until you early. It's about us. When you have a family and so forth and so on, you, you've been thinking about this little boy a long time since you knew you were going to have one. Yeah. And you're going to pay attention to him and do the things that you feel will make him a better person and and because of that, make him part of a better place to live right. and love. And that's all it's going to take is to every once in a while take inventory of your life and 
do exactly what you're doing. Everything you've been doing the last few months has been about the baby and how you're going to do this and how you're going to, you know, which is great. Yeah. Everybody doesn't think that way, and I'm very proud of you for feeling that way about the family you're going to have. And uh, you'll turn out fine. I think so, too. Because both of you feel that way. I can't wait to see him. So, when are you going to do this next week? Next Thursday. So we're we had a meeting with the doctor today, um, and they just kind of gave us some options, and the decision was made. She's going to get induced next Thursday. So we'll meet with them on Tuesday, next Tuesday, a week from today, and kind of talk about that process and what that'll be like. And then on Thursday, we'll go to the hospital and have the baby. Well, I've, I know what I've got to do when I leave here. Put that on my schedule. That's right. I'll remind you, don't worry. No, you won't have to. I won't forget that. That's great. <laughs> so Rome Greco, my son, he will be, how many generations would that be in Tampa? Your grandfather was here. Oh, very good. <laughs> so that would be three. You're, you'd be the third, right? Yeah, my father would be the fourth. I'll be the fifth. And then he'll be the sixth generation here, which is so incredible. It's amazing. By the way, I like the name you chose. Thank you. Rome. It's interesting, right? It's rare different yeah yeah we love it i don't know how well i was supposed to be roman greco my mom hated that name so she landed on garrett and then i always it always stuck with me i always liked rome or roman and i told that to my wife and she kind of thought it was a cool name and then we went to rome on our honeymoon and that's kind of where we just both decided, you know what? That's a cool name. That's a great name for Well, once you hear it, you don't forget it. Yeah. I don't know anybody by that name. It sticks with you. Except my great-grandson is coming. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to get that picture of you holding him. It's going to be awesome. Well, listen, Nanu, this was incredible. I really appreciate you doing this. I got a ton out of this. What an incredible story and perspective you have of this city and and family and legacy and um, well, I'm just so incredible. What all of you are doing and continuing to do, you know, just the fact that you're having this program and started your own business and so forth and so on reminds me very much of uh, kind of how the family worked. Yeah. And well, that's why I do it. You know, I, I do it for my family and I'm very motivated by my dad and you and your father, you know, your father was an ambitious guy owning gas stations and a hardware store. He was a businessman. Um, so I look at what you all have done before me, and then I think about my son, and I'd be stupid to not make something of myself and go for it. So, well, you can't imagine, Garrett, how proud all of us are that uh, we're part of your life and part of your family. And uh, we're looking forward to. Rome and all the other great things that you're going to produce in your lifetime. And I want to wish you the very best. Appreciate it being on the podcast with you. And I'll be there next Thursday. Next Thursday. <laughs> I love you, Nandu. Thank you. All righty. Bye, everybody. <laughs>